0: John chapter 20, let's let's get into this. John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and says to them, peace be with you. Just an aside, you see that little star by the word said? That means it's present tense. And it's a Greek writing tool that John uses very effectively in this chapter to pull you into the immediacy Jesus says, it's not that he just said, he says as though we're right there listening. And he stood in their midst and says to them, peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands at his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them he breathed on them and says to them receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they have been retained but Thomas one of the twelve called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came so the other disciples were saying to him we have seen the Lord but he said to them Unless I see his hands, in his hands the imprint of the nails and and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace with you. And then he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, Because you have seen seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing You may have life in his name, and that is what we're here for, Lord Jesus, to have life in your name, to have belief encouraged and built up and strengthened, and for those who don't believe that they might receive faith today. We pray this, Lord, every time we gather, and it's not a a hopeless prayer. It is with all hope that we pray that if there is anyone among us today who doesn't believe in you, Lord Jesus, as Messiah, as Savior, Father, would you grace that person with faith to begin today believing you, trusting you, and following you. Lord, teach us all. We need your spirit to understand your word, so bring it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What we talked about Wednesday night, I want to go back to and, and kind of restate to you all, and that is that resurrection is personal. It's personal. It's fascinating to me going through the, the gospel narrative, especially the gospel of John, and we've had 19 chapters now that is just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about his person, his divine nature, his teaching, his authority, all eyes on Jesus. This is John's intention. 19 chapters, we get to chapter 20, and suddenly it's about Mary and Peter and John It's about the disciples all locked down and shut up. It's about Thomas. Suddenly, and it is such a contrast, it's it's hard to miss if you're looking. Suddenly, it's not about Jesus, it's about these followers of his. It focuses on them. We're seeing them. We're learning something of them and their experience. But see, what John's doing is through their eyes, we're still seeing Jesus. Point is that resurrection is personal. Resurrection is as personal as every single one of us gathered here this morning. Resurrection is between you and Jesus, you and God, you understanding Jesus as resurrected Savior and being saved because you believe that. You accept that as true. And you trust him who resurrected what he said, I'll resurrect you. Resurrection is personal. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be resurrected. So Mary heard, he heard one word. You know the word that she heard, right? Her name, Mary, and she knew it was him. And she believed in the resurrected Lord. John saw, he looked into the tomb, he saw, he got the big idea. He realized there is a resurrection that has happened here. He saw and believed that Peter is figuring it out. The disciples are gathered in the room and they're they're hearing all this about those who have seen him and, and, and they're trying to understand But all these resurrection stories that are looking at his followers, are looking through them as witnesses of Jesus because resurrection is personal. But in verse 19, what we find is the disciples in quarantine, they're in lockdown. That's the word that's used. They're shut in. The doors were shut where the disciples were, verse 19. That word shut is Clio in the Greek. Clio means locked and blocked. So, not just closed, but closed with intention. Closed to keep out or or to keep in. Locked. They are shut down. Total lockdown. And I get it. Their leader had just been executed, they were associated with Jesus who was crucified. Who's next? Who's going to die next? Who are they going to come after? And they're all huddled in, terrified. In fact, it even says, for fear of the Jews. Not the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership. Because of what happened. Man, if they can do that to Jesus, what will they do to us? When will the next raid come? (laughs) Clio, Shut. It's an interesting word. They are behind doors that are shut. And this word is used several different ways in the Bible. It's used in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus uses the word clio. He says, go into your room and shut your door and pray in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your prayers are not to impress people. Shut the door and pray to the Lord. He has not the ability to hear through doors. You understand that, right? And then we see the next time it's a woe to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 13, the same word shut is used. Jesus says, you are shutting off the kingdom. He is accusing them of religious obstructionism. May we never be religious obstructionists, those who put our traditions ahead of people who are lost. Now, track with me on this. I'll say more about this in a minute. I I will put the Word of God above everything else. I will put morality and truth and the Bible. I will say I will not compromise on that. But my traditions, eh. Lost people are more important. I'll come back to that thought. The next time the word shut is used, it's speaking of the door shut at the wedding feast. Because the foolish bridesmaids didn't have enough oil, so they go off to find more oil in Jesus' parable. This is in Matthew 25. And the bridesmaids who had the extra oil, oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Those who had the oil, they go in, and the door is shut, and those without cannot get in. Next time it's used, the sky is shut up from rain. Clio, it's, it's shut like a door, it can't rain. Jesus is referring back to Elijah in Luke chapter 4 verse 25 as he's describing that incident we see the word again in a similar way Revelation chapter 11 verse 6 that says in this tribulation period in fact midway through the seven year tribulation time of judgment and wrath that, that is coming on the world Revelation eleven six says the witnesses have the authority to shut up the sky just like Elijah, which is why I think Elijah's one of the two witnesses. If you want more information on that, go listen through the entire Revelation series. <laughs> so then the next time we see the word shut used, it's when a friend is in need. A friend goes knocking on his door. Door is shut. Hey, I, I need some bread. I have some unexpected guests and I need some bread. And the friend on the inside, the neighbor says, look, I am in bed. My kids are in bed. Why are you bothering me? The door is shut. Jesus is talking about persistent prayer there and he says, you keep knocking because eventually, even if he doesn't want to help you, he will because you're bugging him so much. And it's not that the Lord doesn't want to help those who pray, but he sure loves persistence. Stay at it. Keep knocking, even if it seems like the door is shut because your father, he hears you. Uh, That was Luke 11, verse 7. Then there's a time the officers, I like this use of the word shut, the officers go to the prison they had imprisoned Peter and John for preaching the gospel in the temple courts so the next morning they go to get them to bring them to trial and the doors are shut Clio but no one's home where are Peter and John they're right back in the temple courts preaching the gospel shut Acts chapter 21 verse 30 the temple gets shut And that's a scene where Paul is in the temple and he's teaching the truth and all of a sudden a riot starts to form and they pull him out of the temple and they shut the doors. No sanctuary for you. And so Paul is out without anywhere to go when the doors are shut. Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 guarantees Satan will be thrown into the abyss and it will be shut and locked for a thousand years. Won't that be great? no satan running around doing what he does no prowling lion seeking to devour no liar no deceiver gone shut down and then finally the gate to new jerusalem revelation chapter 21 verse 25 will never be shut remains wide open we will come and go and be with jesus wonderful so did you did you get all those those are all the uses of the word shut in the New Testament, with two exceptions, there are two more. And I say the last two because they have immediate application for you and me today, as does verse 19 when the doors were shut where the disciples were. Let me just put it this way that ought not to ever be. That is, the doors were shut where the disciples were. The other uses of this word, Clio, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is speaking, and he says, right, one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who holds who, or who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, he says this, Jesus describing himself. By the way, that's prophecy from Isaiah 22. And he says, I know your deeds, church of Philadelphia. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. An open door that no one can shut. The government can try to shut you down, but they cannot shut down the gospel. Right. Now, I know this sounds a little bit like a, a sermon for 2020. Listen, we, we moved through that season. That's behind us. That's over. It will never happen again. <laughs> it won't happen here. Amen. The doors are open and since we reopened, they will remain open. They have to, and I've told you all, you know, without looking back and shoulds and how, why did we and how you know that's something I learned through the process of the shutdown was that the church cannot be shut down, and that the word of God is not imprisoned. And even when when that attempt is made, the disciples the disciples should not be behind the door that's shut. We're the church of the open door. That's what Jesus calls Philadelphia, the church of the open door. There are four churches. I'm not going to get into this. This is also Revelation series stuff. But there are four end times churches, four pictures of what the church looks like in these last days. And three of them I don't want to be. Philadelphia, I'm all in. The church of brotherly love the church whose doors are open, the church that is still surging forward with the gospel, door wide open, not shut, right here, right now. But John's use of this word is unlike any of the others. The disciples were scared shut. They're shut down. Again, verse 19, for fear of the Jews. And fear can shut you down faster than anything else. I remember driving out of the parking lot and down Troxel and hitting 20 the day after the whole quarantine began. Weirdest thing. Wasn't that the weirdest, most bizarre global incident? And I remember driving down 20 and it was not a car in sight. I'm driving along, almost feeling like, should I even be... Out here, you know. Did the rapture happen and I'm just here? (laughs) Just strange. Everything shut. Fear. Fear of threats. Fear of reprisals. In that case, fear of a virus that no one knew what was really going on. Fear of culture. Fear of what others might say or or do or, or think. It's all the same thing. It's the fear of man. And the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted, Proverbs 29, 25. And there are some brothers and sisters who I deeply love who are like, yeah, that was me, Rick. That was me. Fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. And I trusted the Lord during the lockdown. Then why were you so stressed out? Isn't it amazing how anxious people got and upset and angry and just, ah, it was the weirdest thing. It's the fear of man brings a snare that trips us up in all directions, even if we're trying to fight against it. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And I'll tell you what, number one thing you know when you trust in the Lord is peace. Regardless of what's going on around you, trust in the Lord. Peace. First thing Jesus is going to say, shalom. Bottom line is, and there's one more use of this word shut that I want you to see. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John says you can't say you love God and hate your brother. can't do it. can't say you love God and shut off your heart, close down your heart to a dying and a lost and a depressed and a fearful world. You can't shut your heart. So what I want to talk about this morning as we go through the end of this chapter is the idea of what does it take to believe beyond closed doors? What does it take to get the disciples out of the room? out from the doors that are shut. They're going to be shut here. They're going to be shut again a week later. Even after they've seen Jesus, they're going to be back upstairs shut down. What does it take to believe beyond closed doors? We're going to answer that by answering seven questions this morning. Question number one, how did Jesus get in? Look at it again. It was evening, first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And says to them, peace be with you. Now, you got to understand, again, that word shut, it is locked and blocked. And you move from their shut in out of fear to Jesus came and stood in their midst. What happened? How did he get in there? He wasn't standing outside saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. No, he just stood in their midst. And he says, peace. Of course he said, peace. Can you imagine? He's there? Now, I shared this first service against my better judgment. It's a phrase I learned from my dad. Against my better judgment, I will share it now, but I'm telling you, if any of you do this to me, you will suffer the consequences. <laughs> I am not someone who likes to be surprised. Oh, I like surprises, but I don't like walking around the corner of my house and someone's just standing there, Hua! Right, Honor Marie? Right, Chris? Right, Cheryl? See, just this last week, I'm walking into the bedroom. Cheryl's walking out. No intention. She is completely minding her own business. She's just coming out of the room. I'm walking in. I, I'm, I, know, I know how I'm going to die. I'm going to die of a heart attack walking into a room and finding Cheryl standing there. And down I'm going to go. Flatline. I don't like to be startled. I just don't like it. And if you startle me, I'm just telling you, my fists are on their own. (laughs) They will fly where they may. It's not my fault. Not my fault. They're in the room, locked in, shut. No way anyone can get in. What's up, guys? Wah! And he doesn't even say what's up. He says, shalom. Shalom. What a great word. Shalom. It's not because they were startled. It's because there is no peace in lockdown. They are terrified. They are not at rest. They are not at peace. Jesus shows up. In lockdown, there's fear and control. But listen, church of the open door, there is peace in resurrection. And I'm talking about Jesus' resurrection and I'm talking about your resurrection. There's peace in resurrection. My boys asked me yesterday, Dad, are you afraid of God? Am I afraid of God? Chris and David, they're having a little argument over there on the couch, which I've told them is more fun than watching TV for me. I just like watching them go at it. And, and, and they're like, Dad, Chris says, are you afraid of God? And I said, what do you mean? We are, are you afraid that God can come down and just crush you and kill you right here and now? And I said, no. No, if God decides to take my life, good for him. I just get to be with him. So I'm not afraid of that. In fact, I told them the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear because because fear is involved with punishment. And I know I'm not going to be punished. Why? Because of the grace of God through Jesus. Because of what Jesus bought on the cross. I'm not going to be punished. I am redeemed. So no, I I don't fear God coming down and going, you're gone. But I do fear the Lord. I do fear the Lord. And we're called as his people to fear God more than we fear man. And you know how significant that is right now? That means what God says in his word needs to be kept above anything that culture says. Because I fear God more than I fear man. And, and yeah, hey, I'm a human being. Sometimes I fear man. Sometimes I fear, you know, when the red and blue lights are flashing behind me, there's fear. There's fear. But I fear God more. I would rather stand before God and say, I kept your word, than stand before man and say, don't worry about it, it's all good. I don't want to offend you. Which is why we're doing those round tables, by the way. Not so that we can be woke, but so we can be awake and alert to the truth of God's Word. And we will at those roundtables get into the Word about those specific topics uh, as we talked about gender being the first one we'll deal with. But this is so cool. There is peace in resurrection, in your resurrection, in my resurrection. And we talked about this midweek, but Jesus is just there. That means... In our resurrected bodies, we will be able to just be there. I am praying that in my resurrected body, I am no longer startled. Because I know some of you are just gonna be like there just to see what happens. (laughs) But it's so wonderful that we get to recognize in the resurrection of Jesus as we see him walking in those 40 days on earth that's a picture of our resurrected state. That will be you, that will be me. Don't confuse this with Revelation chapter 1 where John sees Jesus in all his glory, eyes of fire and sword coming out of his mouth and all that startling awesomeness. You will not be like that, but you will be like Jesus in your resurrected body. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Our citizenship... Oh, man, that's worth underlining. Our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We're going to be like Him. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself, John says, 1 John 3, verse 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That is, we will have resurrected bodies and ain't no door going to keep you out or hold you in. And I, I'm very excited about this. I really think, based on Scripture, maybe a little loosely, but I really think our travel is going to be unhindered. If you need to go meet with Jesus in Jerusalem, you're not going to have to book a flight. You just go. But I know, based on seeing Jesus moving around with the apostles and the disciples in those 40 days, he's just he is where he needs to be. So he is in their midst. He shows up. But the question, how does Jesus get in? Well, he's in his resurrected body, but let's take it a step further. How does he get in to you? And the answer is by faith. By faith. He enters the heart of a person who is willing to trust him. We have been over this and over this. i got to say it again. We have made faith in Christianity and in the world, in religion. We've made faith this religious exercise. You must have faith. It is trust. In the same way that I implicitly trust my wife, in the same way I trust my family or my dear friends, but even beyond that, because he's more trustworthy than any of this, I put my trust in Jesus, who never lets me down. I put my trust in him. I believe in him. And when I put my trust in him, no door can keep him out. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens to me, I'll come in. And we will dine together, Jesus says. And we know by experience that shutting in and holding up and locking down does not bring peace. Only Jesus brings peace. Shalom. Shalom, he says. And I'll tell you what, it's one thing to be shut down for fear of a virus. It is another thing to shut up for fear of man or worse, to live with a closed heart. Resurrection brings you to life. So Jesus repeats himself from three nights earlier when he says, peace with you. Remember what he said, John 14, 27? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be troubled. Fearful, because the opposite of peace is fear. And Jesus said, I've given you my peace. I give you my peace. And three days later, they got no peace. So he has to say it again, peace, shalom. I don't know if he sees it in their eyes, if he sees it in their behavior, peace with you. And when he had said this, before anything else happens, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. What a class act. I I can't say that I would have done the same thing. I think I probably would have showed up in their midst because I think that's awesome. And I probably just would have been standing there. And then I probably just would have left. He shows them his his hands. He shows them his side. What is he doing? He is showing them the gospel. The crucifixion, get this, the crucifixion and the resurrection. The crucifixion and the death and the resurrection. What do you mean? He shows them the crucifixion in his hands. But as we talked about last week, he proves his death when he shows them his side. This was the proof of death. This was when the blood and water came shooting out from the spear and proved Jesus was dead. He could have showed them his hands and they would have known, yes, he was crucified, but the showing of the side declared, I was dead and I am now alive. And they saw that side wound and it blew their minds, proving both the crucifixion and now the resurrection from death. And what did they do? They rejoiced. Oh, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And he said they would. I and mean, this was all seen ahead of time. John 16, again on that Thursday night, right before this, therefore you too have grief now, he recognizes. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. We see this expressing itself somewhat down in verse 25 when the other apostles are going to be saying to Thomas, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. Their rejoicing had not left them. And there's something about walking with Jesus where you know that you know that even though you have grief now, you will rejoice. You will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And when we're grieving, that is hard to believe like Wednesday we talked about Mary she couldn't even see who Jesus was she was in her grief she wasn't even shocked at the angels she was in her grief and in our grief we can feel like we will never rejoice again we will never be happy we can't we're not allowed to because we're grieving but Jesus says though you grieve your heart will rejoice and no one will take it away that will be our experience when we see Jesus We're going to rejoice. We're going to dance. Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness so that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord, my God. I will give thanks to you forever. Listen, mourning into dancing, some of y'all are going to dance even though you don't want to. I know. I know you. I'm one of those musicians don't dance because we look stupid. No one's going to be looking. We're all going to be looking at Jesus and just there's nothing that's going to, we just can't help it, you know? Our mourning will be dancing, our joy forever. I love that promise because, because this life is sorrowful. Because we do have days where we remember those we love that aren't here. And Jesus says, I know, I get it. You will rejoice. Just trust me in that. What was on Jesus' mind? That's the second question. What was on Jesus' mind or or in his heart? And we see without hesitation, the very next thing out of his mouth, peace be with you, verse 19, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And without hesitation, he reconfirms their calling. Now, I don't know if that'd be the first thing I'd say. These guys are pretty messed up over this whole thing. And they had shown a a tremendous lack of faith. And yet, what does he say? I'm going to send you guys. You're going to send us? Because we sent ourselves running from you like scared chickens a few nights ago, and now you're going to send us? Yeah, that's been the plan all along. Their heads are spinning, just trying to catch up to his appearing, and he's already talking about the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I like that he says, lo, I'm with you always. It doesn't mean he's not with you when you're flying in an airplane at 30,000 feet. What it means... What it means is he's just with us. You could even say, even when I'm low, he's with me. (laughs) Always. To the end of the age. And he's given us this amazing authority, this commission. Jesus isn't worried about the apostles or the disciples gathered behind closed doors. He's already ready to send them. Jesus is concerned for those beyond the closed doors. He's concerned for a lost world. He's concerned for a dying people. He's concerned for those who are consumed by their own sin. And you know what's interesting? And someone's not going to like this. I like to say that just to see if people perk up. Someone's not going to like this. In all the teachings of Jesus, he never once told people to go to church. But he did tell the church to go to the people. And we kind of have gotten it a little turned around. Someone would say, oh, good. Pastor said I don't have to go to church. I didn't say that. I said, Jesus didn't tell us going to church was the thing. He told us that the church would go. As the Father sent me, so I send you. He told us to get our faith, to get our belief beyond closed doors. In fact, he said we're the church of the open door. That we're to get the word out, doors wide open, to receive and accept anyone who wants to know Jesus, regardless, by the way, of what state they are in when they enter. He'll change that. He'll affect that. But Jesus said in Luke 15:7, "I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." You know what that means please listen to this, you may only in your entire life share with one person who gets saved. You know what? Heaven will explode when you do that. It is not about a numbers thing. It's not about saying, okay, all right, I talked to two people and one totally rejected me and the other one said they might come to church if I take them to lunch. Is that something? You keep sharing. You keep inviting. You keep going. And maybe one, maybe just one, will come to Jesus because of you. Praise the Lord. We just keep going with it. We keep bringing the gospel message. We get beyond closed doors because we meet behind open doors. Now, I don't have the camera running right now. We're not live streaming, but I kind of got on to our stay-at-home folks this morning a little bit. We may see the live stream like really take a dip next week. Uh, but I said, and that's for you at home. If you're still sitting at home, you need to be here. The reason we gather here is to be equipped, to be prepared, to be ready. How are you going to go and face the deceit and lies in this world unless you know the truth? So we come, we fill up on the truth, we take in the truth, we know what the scripture has to say, we know what God thinks about any given issue. And By the way, he deals with every single one. There's no cultural issue going on right now that the Bible doesn't speak to directly and specifically. So we come to find that out and we read and study and go, oh, okay, all right, that's where God is at on that and I fear God rather than man, so that's where I'm going to stand. And when people start to pelt me with deception and lies and questions, I can just say, well, this is what the Bible says. Oh, well, if you are going to believe that? Yeah, I do. I do. This is where God stands. But J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said... The highest form of selfishness is for a man who is content to go to heaven alone. The highest form of selfishness. You know that Barna did a survey and discovered that of church-going people, 89%, 89% of respondents said that the church is there to meet my needs and the needs of my family. 11% said the church is here to save the lost. There's a problem with that mentality. Let me just tell you, and I love you all, and we're going to have a church picnic and all kinds of fun, and we have staff working hard to do things and everything. The church is not here for you. You're the church, and you are here for the lost. And we've got to get that straight. Th- this whole idea, and you know, I, this, this just bugs me and always has, that the, the church is this thing. I go to the church, and the church helped me with this. We, it's us. This fellowship, part of the much larger church of followers of Jesus in the world, that's all of us. So don't categorize it as this thing over here that meets my needs and services me when I have struggles. No, 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 You are the church, you meet needs. I'm the church, I meet needs. I do this because because I have to. And same with you. So don't pack your bags for a guilt trip on that one. Just pack your bags for the Great Commission to go because Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Question number three, how did the Father send Jesus? This one's easy. We already answered it. Back in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed the very same thing as you sent me into the world, Father, I also have sent them into the world. So how did the Father send Jesus? And when we studied John 17, we said incarnationally. That is, Jesus became the exact representation of the Father, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. So when Jesus came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us so we could see God and know God and understand God. Jesus came representing God as the Father sent me, so also I send you, which means now I go, representing Jesus In the same incarnational pattern, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So once I'm reconciled to God, I go right back out the open door to see people reconciled to God, to bring the name of Jesus, the gospel. Colossians 1.27, Paul wrote, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is why we're called Christians, little Christs, running all around the, the world. Jesus in us, speaking the name of Jesus to people, we are incarnationally representing him. Again, not like Jesus in Revelation chapter one, (laughs) boom. We are representing the character and the nature and the person of Jesus. We preach the gospel of Jesus. We share the crucifixion of Jesus, the love of God in Jesus. That's our message. So we come representing him. How did the father send Jesus? As you sent me into the world so I send them. But watch this. Watch this. He never sends us out alone. And he never sends us out without equipping us for the mission. Verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, now when I read this as we began, I said, awkward because I've always thought that was a little weird. I'm just telling you right now, if we're all in a Bible study together in a small group home environment, and you lean over and breathe on me, I'm going to say, you want a Tic Tac? Because bro. <laughs> you breathe on them? That's just, it's very strange. And strange enough that the commentators are all over the map on trying to understand this, which just cracks me up, you know, for all of the, for all of the learning and the, you know, the pontification and uh, explaining to you what this really, and they, they just don't get it. Let me just tell you something about the Bible. If you want to understand it, read it as it is. You don't have to add, you don't have to pile things up. Just look, what does it say? What happened? There are commentators who say when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, this was actually John's way Of expressing the giving of the Holy Spirit that we we see play out in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, but John wanted it in his gospel, so he roped it in and he just kind of put it here as an example of that's not what happened. Why is it in John chapter 20? Because on the first day of the week, when they were in the upper room gathered and Jesus stood in their midst, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's when it happened. Now, why does John tell us this now? Now, understand, he's telling us this in in the Gospel of John, which was written probably 50 years after the book of Acts. So the church already knew about the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that we see on the day of Pentecost, what Jesus called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Remember our Holy Spirit study in John 14, 15, 16 recently? If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Not my words. Listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. But, but he very clearly, very clearly, laid, Man, I'm so far off of my notes. Where am I? I have no idea. Oh, he breathed on them. Yeah, yeah. He very clearly said that you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that was 40 days after this. So John by the Holy Spirit, gives us something that we needed to know that the apostles had received the Holy Spirit before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not preaching to you as a Pentecostal. I'm just saying what the Bible says. I'm not trying to hold up a tradition. What's the timeline here? John says, actually, let me clear it up for you. On Sunday night of Resurrection Day, he gave us his indwelling Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit at that time. And why does he breathe on them? Why does he have to do it that way? He's, he's showing them what he's doing. He's very simply, very graphically showing him. And by the way, note this, the word breathed right there, it's not pneuma, which if you're a Bible student, you might suspect that, that word pneuma, which means breath or spirit, and it's kind of used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, the pneuma the spirit, the breath. So people say, yeah, he pneumaed he on them. No, no, that's not the word. Now the word pneuma is in the sentence when he says, receive the hagias pneuma, the Holy Spirit. But when he breathed on them, the word is emfusao. emphusao. Sounds like emphysema, right? And, and it's where the, the word emphysema comes from, but it doesn't mean can't breathe. It means to blow or to puff. So the words on them really isn't even in the sentence it's that he puffed. He puffed and said believe the holy this is way before puff the magic dragon was even a song right <laughs> so he puffed he blew and said receive the holy spirit put to think you're sitting there and he goes receive the holy spirit what do you get out of that he's giving me the holy spirit I now have the indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God. And that is absolutely what just happened. He gave them his spirit. Now, what's funny, again, along come the commentators. (laughs) And the commentators go, well, if he actually had given... See, it's got to be just a, a metaphor for what was coming later. No. Well, I mean, if he had given them his spirit... Well, then obviously they would be changed. They would be different. They would be better. And we see them one week later, they're still in lockdown. And then in the next chapter, we see they all go back fishing again instead of taking the gospel. Well, then clearly they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Listen, when you gave your life to Jesus, when you got baptized, the Bible says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Were you automatically immediately just better? Thank you. Or did you go home and get in an argument with your wife and then go, I've been baptized. What is wrong with me? How many of you as followers of Jesus have said that? I believe in you, Jesus. I believe I have the Spirit. What is wrong with me? (laughs) Just because you have the indwelling Spirit doesn't mean you got it all together. See, that's when the process begins and the Spirit who is now with us begins to sanctify us and change us, and it is a process. Man, we're basket cases, and, and then he begins to develop the fruit of the Spirit so that we can become fruit baskets. <laughs> it just, but it takes time, and that's God's work in all of our lives, and those of you who are younger, and, I, and I, I'm specifically even talking to my own kids, give it time. Give it time. You will have passionate moments believing in Jesus right now, and then you'll have moments where you're just flat on your face going, fruitless, fruitless. You're in process. Let Jesus work on you. So just because they receive the Spirit doesn't mean they're automatically different. And they are excited that they've seen the Lord. I'll get there in just a second. But let me ask question number four Have we seen anything like this before? He puffed, he blew and said receive the holy spirit. And as a matter of fact, this word empousao, it's only used one time in the New Testament right here. So it's the only time in the entire New Testament where we get this puffing action. That's significant. John is drawing attention to something that happened that night that was very specific, receive the holy spirit. But the word is used at another time, just not in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament. Now that may confuse some of you because you're like, wait, The New Testament is Greek, the Old Testament is Hebrew, so it can't be the same word. You would be right, except that 280 years before Jesus, 70 scholars, Jewish scholars, Hebrew scholars, got together and translated the Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That was the Bible that Jesus used. That was the Apostles' Bible. That's why when you read the New Testament, if you get a quote from the Old Testament, it's not exact, because what you're getting is the English translation from the Greek that was from the original Hebrew. Doesn't mean that it's not as literal and specific. It is. But you're just getting a translation at this point of the original. So, So here's the thing. In the Hebrew, it was translated to Greek and one time in the Greek translation of the Older Testament, one time the word infusao is used just once. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and puffed and blew and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord puffed and Adam came to life. Jesus puffed and the Holy Spirit entered his apostles. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul puts it together. He says, the first man, Adam, puff, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became puff, a life-giving spirit. The difference between Adam and Jesus, between when God puffed and Adam came to life and when Jesus puffed and said, receive the Holy Spirit, is the difference between soul and spirit that now suddenly, those who are alive are going to be alive forever. Our spirits change. The Holy Spirit now with us. Spirit life, true life, eternal life. And it's yours in Christ Jesus when you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. John 20, this is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is when His Spirit comes To dwell in the apostles. And again, as Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's the gift. And I'll tell you, I said this first service, I would rather have the gift than the gifts any day. I would so much rather have his presence with me than his power. But here's the wonderful thing this is what he did. 10 days after Jesus said, John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts chapter 1, verse 5. 10 days later came Shavuot, Pentecost. Boom, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. They already had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, how can you get that? Because that's the chronology. Because John makes it clear, and we need to understand that presence first power second. He's so wise in doing that. He gives presence before power. If he gave power, we'd be like, you know, two-year-olds with chainsaws. But he gives presence first. And with the presence comes comfort and peace and confidence and strength and faith and hope and love with the presence of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit begins to be worked in us. And then he gives the power. And the power is a secondary thing that he gives for ministry, he gives for evangelism, he gives so that we can do what he's called us to do as the Father sent me, so I send you. So I have his presence, he's with me. Remember the cup in the pitcher? Do you remember that example? Fill up the cup, fill up the glass till it's overflowing. That's like being filled with the Holy Spirit. But then take that glass and drop it right back into the pitcher and it just disappears. Surrounded, filled, alongside, upon, within the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's, that's what He has for us. And that's how He sends us out, not alone and not ill equipped. He's with us and He gives us everything we need. It's like Exodus 33, verse 14. God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest, the Lord said to the people of Israel. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. And I so agree. Lord, if you're not going, I'm not going. If you're not doing it, I don't want to do it. If you're not involved with it, keep me out of it. But if you're doing it, that's where I want to be. That's where we're called to be. Question number five. So, having his spirit and knowing that we are being sent, what are we sent to do? Watch this, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Whew, that's pretty serious. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 16, 19 up at Caesarea Philippi as he he is drawing the disciples away to give them some intentional teaching and Peter blurts out after Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, well done, Peter. You didn't figure that out, but well done. My father gave that to you. And then Jesus says, Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, he says, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What that means is you will be aligned with me so that what I'm doing in heaven, you then will do on earth. So if you're binding something on earth, it's because it's already been bound. If you are loosing something, it's because it's already been loosed. Stay with me here, Matthew 18, verse 18. Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, here's the thing. A lot of of people apostolize all of this. So they take Matthew 16, 19, Matthew 18, 18, and they take John 20, verse 23, and they say that's apostle stuff. That's for the apostles. That is not for us. They apostolize it. One problem is that we don't even know if it was just the apostles in the upper room. In fact, I can show you that it wasn't. On Sunday night, it was not just the apostles. If you look at the other gospels, it was disciples. Now, the apostles were there, except Thomas. We'll get to him. The apostles were there, 10 of them, in the upper room, and so were the men from the, who had been on the road to Emmaus, and so were some of the women, and so were some others gathered there. So there were a group of disciples there, and Jesus breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Oh, I like that one. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Ooh, I don't want that authority. I don't want that power. Let's leave that to the apostles. Let me ask this. Why are some people so intent on leaving things in the first century? Why do we do that? Why do we read the Bible and go, oh, well, that's a first century thing. That's not for today. Does it say that it's a first century thing and not for today? So why do we apostolize things and hand it all over? I'm not saying the apostles aren't unique. They were and are. Their names are going to be written on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, not yours and not mine. They had a very specific office. They brought us the New Testament. They preached the gospel. They turned the world upside down. They're very unique, very gifted, and they had an apostolic authority that nobody has today. So I agree with that. However, this authority is for you and for me. What do you mean? Well, first of all, we have the same indwelling spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us and we have the same authority to forgive sins and to, listen to me, and to retain them. But hear what this means. The context makes it very clear. Jesus is giving authority to all who have his spirit to forgive and to withhold forgiveness. Because that's what happens when we speak the gospel. That is the response. It's not what you're doing. All you're doing is giving the gospel. But if a person hears the gospel and repents, guess what? They're forgiven. If a person hears the gospel and rejects it, guess what? Their sins are retained. Until the point comes when they hear the truth of Jesus and say, yes, Lord, I believe, and then their sins are forgiven. See, it's not what we do. All we do is share the gospel. We don't provide forgiveness. Neither did the apostles. But we proclaim it. And we don't determine sinfulness but we declare it. And and this is where I think the church is really weak in the knees. We're not good at declaring that is sin. That is wrong. That is wickedness. That is evil. I'm not saying you as a person are evil, but what you're doing is. I'm not saying you are a sinner, although if the sin fits and and please understand i'm not trying to be harsh here but we're sent incarnationally what did jesus do he spoke with grace and truth and he did not mince words and he did not dance around the issues or walk on eggshells or tiptoe through the tulips and neither should we we are sent to speak the truth of the gospel and some will be offended by that and some will recognize their sin in that and they will be angered by it and their sin will be retained. Their sin remains until they accept Jesus. Others will hear the gospel and be immediately forgiven because they have received Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we are no longer to be children. You know, it's time to be done with that kind of immaturity. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That is the world that we're in. That's why I say we need to be together in church because we got to hear the truth so that we can refute the lies. And if you don't know what his word says, you will not answer. And that, by the way, is why the church is so weak when it comes to sexual morality issues. Because people don't know what the Bible says. Churches, Christians who who just say it doesn't matter what people's lifestyles are and it doesn't matter what they think or what they do. You don't know what the Bible says. If I know what it says, I have the strength to stand with confidence on his word and say, I love you, but what you're doing is not okay with God. What would this country look like if we had that kind of confidence? If the church of the last... 50 years of my life was still teaching the Bible week in and week out and people were still showing up Sunday night, Sunday mornings, Wednesday night. See, that's how I was raised. Drove me nuts sometimes because there were all kinds of TV shows I was missing. But where's the confidence? Where's the boldness? It's right here. And it's right here when you have His Spirit We are no longer to be children, but speaking the truth in love. That means the compassion goes hand in hand. I love you too much to ignore the sin. And by the way, I hope you love me enough not to ignore the sin in my life. I hope you love me enough that if you see me walking down a road, doing something, acting in a way that is not becoming of a follower of Jesus, I hope you'll tell me. Because if you don't, you don't love me. I love my kids so much when they start to do the wrong thing, I will stop them and tell them. And so we speak the gospel and we speak the truth in love. And in so doing, we grow up. Grace and truth, both realized in Christ Jesus. So we're sent, equipped with Holy Spirit presence, right? The indwelling Spirit of God with gospel authority. This is sin. This is forgiveness. And we are sent with Holy Spirit power, equipped for whatever. You know, what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit gives to each as he wills. He knows when you need gifts. He knows when you need abilities. He knows when you need power for certain situations. He'll give it to you at the right time. His timing. And I trust him for that, so I don't have to tell you to do anything except preach the gospel. Verse 24, we're almost done. But that doesn't matter, does it? Verse twenty-four. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or as I like to call him, T. Diddy, was not with them when Jesus came. Where was Thomas? You know what's really interesting? All the rest were locked down. Where was Thomas? See, I have this sense that Thomas is not what we thought, and I really wonder if he's out walking the streets of Jerusalem, going, "Yeah, you gonna arrest me? Go on, bring it on." Mm-hmm. This is the same guy who said just previously, let's go with Jesus and die with him if we have to. I think Thomas was not quite as afraid. Now, I'm just guessing, but you know what? So is every person across 2,000 years who ever called him the doubting Thomas. You're making an assumption. So let's not do that. Let's just look at Thomas here. One of the 12, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nails, or in his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Oh, the doubting Thomas. Have you ever lost someone dear to you? Are you ready to think three days later that he's back and he's fine and everything's all good? Where's Thomas's heart? I think Thomas is grieving. And again, this is just my guess. I don't know. But I know if I was in his shoes, I would really have trouble believing if someone says we'd seen the Lord, and I hadn't. Guys, that sounds great, but don't ask me to go through this again. Don't ask me to believe in a man who who is dead, who's gone. Don't push me. Don't take me there. Again, I don't know his heart but I know he was struggling to believe what he had not yet seen. After eight days, verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut. There's the word again, Cleo. And he stood in their midst and said, peace with you. Bible students, there's another word here for you to see. On Wednesday night, we talked about all the different ways that they saw Jesus, that the first word was this Greek word blepo, which means just to see. They just, they, they, they looked and they saw the stone rolled away. Didn't really mean anything. They just saw, you know, with their eyes. John looked inside the tomb and he saw the, the linen wrappings, but, but just with his eyes and Peter goes in and he he sees, but the word changes from blepo to theoreo, which means he sees and he begins to make suppositions, to theorize. He begins to think it through. And then after that, we, we see John goes and he looks again. And when he sees the linen wrappings and the face mask rolled up, he looks, he sees and he believes, but the word see there is oida, where we get idea. John gets the idea. He sees and believes But all of a sudden, we see this different word for see. So the other disciples, verse 25, were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. And it's none of those other words. The word here is horao, which means to behold with perception. To behold with perception. We preach all the time that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But you know what? In this case, they saw and they believed. So they did. They perceived. Once they finally saw Jesus and saw the nail prints and and the the wound from the sword, from the spear, they they believed. Okay, so, and Jesus allows for it. He doesn't denigrate them because they saw and believed. He just, he says, you know, take a look. He knows they needed to see and they saw and they got it. And once once again, Jesus gets in. He gets into the room. Doors having been shut, locked down, he comes now for Thomas. And all of a sudden, it's personal again, isn't it? It's just about the guy. He wouldn't have had to come back eight days later, but for Thomas. So he shows up, he goes in there, Thomas Didymus. Thomas means twin, Didymus means twofold. He's the twin twin. The the twofold twin, you could call him Tui. Uh, you know, he had a nickname, and, and some say his nickname was based on his real name because Thomas means twin. They called him Didymus, which was, you know, twofold. So it's like the, the twin who's, who we call the twin, and they're just messing with him. Maybe so. Uh, some say it's a description of his personality. You know, he's devoted, but he doubts. He, he's committed, and yet he's cynical, Maybe they called him the twin because there was someone else that looked a lot like him. Some have suggested Jesus, that he had kind of a circa 1970s Jesus people look about him, and they said, hey, he looks like Jesus, let's call him the twin. But let me ask you this morning who else might be Thomas's twin? Might it be you? Might you be the twin who vacillates from devotion? to doubt, from commitment to cynicism, the back and the forth. Listen, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James 1.8. James 4.8, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why? Because blessed are those who are pure in heart, single-hearted. Why? They shall see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. But whatever the case, Thomas now, he sees the Lord. Jesus shows him. Jesus says, verse 27, after saying, peace with you, he said to Thomas, Jesus says, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand, put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas does what nobody else has yet done. He says, my Lord and my God. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, implying God. But Thomas just comes right out and says it here. He is my Lord and my, my God. You're my Lord and my God. Question number six, why doesn't, Thomas, uh, why doesn't Jesus correct him? Because he spoke the truth. Because he is God. Jesus is not like the angel in Revelation 19 who stood before John in Revelation 19.10. John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Why doesn't Jesus say worship God? Because Thomas is worshiping God. And it's an apex moment in this gospel. This is where John has been leading to. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was in the beginning and the word was God. He starts off the gospel and now at the very end we see Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. It all comes together through the testimony of the doubter. (laughs) I love Thomas. Thank you, Thomas, for making it clear for all of us, my Lord and my God, Man, while these resurrection stories are, are very, very personal, they are personally written to proclaim Jesus. And so in verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? The question mark is added by the translators. Now, he may have said it as a question, but he may also have just simply acknowledged faith. He may also just have said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Jesus is not denigrating Thomas. He's not getting on those who struggle and need a little bit more to to, to come to faith. No, he's just speaking of a greater blessing that follows. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And that's you if you follow Jesus. That, That night Jesus said, they're going to be so blessed. They haven't even seen me, and yet they believe in me. That's awesome. Who is that? That's all of us. Look around. I wonder if Peter had this in mind. When he said, 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of Of your souls. Verse 30, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And it's said that Johannine theology can be summed up in one sentence, one sentence alone. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote Revelation for one reason, that you may believe. That you may believe. For the non-believer, that you may believe and have life. For the believer that you may believe beyond closed doors, that our faith would lift us on our feet out to share this great truth with anyone who will listen. And I know there are a lot of people who won't. But keep talking keep taking the gospel wherever you go someone's going to hear and get saved you know what it took one person who you don't even know his name right donna one person whose name remains completely unknown to every one of us in this auditorium to speak to billy graham who got saved that guy is going to be walking around heaven and i can't tell you how many people are going to be coming up to him going thank you so much People he won't even know. One person spoke the truth to Billy Graham and Billy Graham got saved and countless thousands have given their lives to Jesus as a result of that. That is the church of the open door. Don't shut down. And the final question here, it's how John ends this chapter. It's the final question of the book, but listen to me very carefully. The question is not who is Jesus That might surprise you. The question isn't who is Jesus. The final question, question number seven, is who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Savior of the world? Jesus Christ and no one else, none other. Who's yours? Who's your Messiah? Who's going to save you? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you so much for your patience, not just with the apostles, but with us. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Being with us in spite of ourselves. And we bless your name this morning. Lord, I pray that anyone who is struggling with the issue of faith, anyone who finds himself in a place of doubt would just simply trust you. Lord, if there's anyone among us who has yet to give their life to you, to become a Christian, a follower of yours, I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, bring faith into the heart. In Jesus' name.